Good evening. Uh, we begin the readout tonight with the dizzying spread of the Delta variant. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has deployed the National Guard to help at hospitals. Louisiana reported 139 deaths, the most in a single day since the start of the pandemic. And in Florida, more than 17,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID, with more than 3,000, 3,000 ICU patients. Emergency services around Tampa Bay are being pushed to the brink. EMS workers are waiting hours to transfer patients to hospitals. In a disturbing flashback to the spring of 2020, Broward Health Medical Center is adding temporary mortuary facilities. Despite all of this unnecessary death and agony, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has emerged during this pandemic as a kind of Dr. Death, continues to wage his war, not against the virus, but against the people who are fighting to stem the tide of this Delta tsunami. And people are getting, frankly, tired of it. A new Quinnipiac poll of Floridians shows that 59% of adults say the COVID situation is now out of control. Local officials and corporations are also losing patience with the seemingly pro-COVID governor. Disney, a huge moneymaker in the state, has struck an agreement with their 38,000-strong union to mandate vaccines among its workers. Disney Cruises and Carnival Cruises are requiring a vaccine in order to board their ships. And today, the Broward County School Board refused to back down on their mask mandate. They could be fined up to $31,000 for daring to protect the lives of the kids in their district. Just take that in for a second. They're being punished for protecting children. And just to give you a sense of how dumb and dangerous these anti-mask mandates are, the Associated Press found that more than 80 school districts or charter networks in more than a dozen states have closed or delayed in-person classes in at least one of their schools. Clearly, DeSantis isn't the only governor rolling out the red carpet for this ravenous virus. In July, the South Carolina legislature passed a law prohibiting, prohibiting school administrators from requiring masks. Over the past two weeks, South Carolina's COVID death rate has risen 278%. That's not a typo, 278%. One superintendent and his school board have had enough. They're asking the state Supreme Court for a temporary injunction against the mask mandate prohibition. And earlier this afternoon, the ACLU gave him some backup by announcing that they had filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of disability rights groups and parents who believe that the state's mask restriction endangers the lives of their children. Meanwhile, in Texas, the COVID-infected, thrice-injected governor, Greg Abbott, is asking the Texas Supreme Court to lift an injunction that keeps him from punishing school districts that are enforcing mask mandates there. Roughly 60 districts, including Dallas, are defying Governor Abbott by requiring masks in school. With me now, Rosalind Osgood, school board chair for Broward County Public Schools, and Michael Inojosa, superintendent of the Dallas Independent School District. And Dr. Osgood, I'm going to start with you. Uh, as a former Broward County resident, I was so proud to hear you this morning on Morning Joe talking about the fact that you didn't care if they docked your pay. Your top priority was protecting kids. So talk about what Broward County is doing to stand up to this governor. Well, we made a decision and we're sticking to our decision as we continue to see COVID positivity rates increase in our county. 
We continue to listen at members of our community, which include our staff, our students, our parents. We continue to have real live experiences where we are seeing people die, whether it's teachers in our schools, whether members in our churches are being impacted with COVID, and even members in our own family. So the COVID pandemic is very real to us. It is causing a major hardship on this county already with the 18 and 19 months that we've been dealing with it. There's been a lot of grief and a lot of loss. So there is no way that we could in good conscience not use every tool we have in our toolbox to provide a safe work environment for our staff and a safe learning environment for our students. It's just no way possible. And it's really, you know, when you think about it, about defying the governor, it's more about standing up for what's morally yeah. right yeah. and protecting the people that you love. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, has the governor, the governor DeSantis, visited any Broward County schools to see how students and, uh, and teachers are faring? Not to my knowledge. Okay. That, I, I, I thought I knew the answer to that, but I thought I would ask. Mr. Enohos, the same question to you. Talk about what your school district is doing in the face of a governor that would rather fight you than fight the virus. Well, thanks, Joy. Thanks for having me. It's been surreal. I'm going to just tell you about my last 30 hours. Uh, 24 hours ago, I was testifying in a court when we sued the governor, along with many other districts, because they would not allow us to have the mask. And in fact, I was shocked when the attorney representing the state barely asked me any questions. They passed the witness in 15 minutes. It was shocking that they didn't even want to grill me about my decision. Now, they have never, not even communicated with me at all. Then today, I had to drive down to Austin to testify for a virtual bill because we had a virtual bill that we could have used to help keep families safe. It died at the last minute during the last session. So during the special session, they've put it up. Once again, I drove down there. I testified for three minutes. Not one question. Now that that passed out of committee with one dissenting vote, because then now they know how the situation has really gotten out of control. I just looked at my dashboard uh, two weeks uh, at the beginning of the week. We only had we had less than double digits of students infected. We now have 353 students that have been infected. So this thing continues to spiral out of control. And yet nobody is confronting me. Nobody is communicating with me. But and they know how I feel about this matter, which is very urgent at this time. Yeah. And I'll ask you the same question. Has your governor or the lieutenant governor visited the school districts or visited any schools in your district to see how the students and parents and teachers are faring? No, absolutely not. We have had no visitors from from the governor nor the lieutenant governor. Yeah. Let me go back to you, Dr. Osgood, for a moment. Uh, Florida. Um, ranks 21st in terms of the vaccine rate. Texas, by the way, ranks 34th. You can just look up there. You can see Vermont is the most vaccinated state in the country with 67 percent of its population vaccinated. Then you go down to Connecticut, all these New England states. Uh, Florida only has a 52 percent vaccination rate. Texas is even worse off, 46 percent. And below them are more red states, Wyoming, Mississippi and Alabama. So I'll start with you, um, Dr. Osgood. We understand that the purpose of what your governor is doing, going after the cruise industry, even as Disney cruises are saying you have to have vaccines. He tried to stop other cruise uh, companies from having vaccine mandates, going after teachers. He wants to be president. He thinks that this is good politics for him. Have you have you gotten a sense in Broward County that his stance for the, quote, freedom of parents, 
to send their children potentially infected with COVID maskless to school. Is this in some way playing well among the people of Broward County? Are you on the wrong side of most of the people who live in Broward or is the governor? I don't think so. The people in Broward County love our children. We love our educators. Our district employs 30,000 employees and about 260,000 students. And we don't like our children and our education system being used as a pawn. As I was listening at Michael, it's interesting because normally when you get an injunction, Joy, there is a due process that takes place. We have not been giving any type of due process hearing or matter to deal with this. We just continue to be bullied and threatened one thing after another for doing what we feel is right for our students and the people in our community. I'm not sure how all of this is playing out. I don't know what the governor or anyone is thinking, but you know, it's kind of real simple. If you don't wear a mask, you have the potential to lose your life, to die or be seriously impacted by COVID. There has not been one case that anybody that wore a mask to protect themselves from COVID died from wearing a mask. So we have to get vaccinated. We're encouraging people to get vaccinated. We know a large number of people are not. We know that there's not a vaccine option for students that are 12 and under. So we have to use masks to protect them. We, this is something that we can't negotiate. We can't compromise. We believe strongly in our school district that the governor is overreaching his authority as the governor. We believe strongly that the Florida Constitution allows a local citizenry to elect local school board members to govern and make policies for school districts. That is what Republicans used to believe, actually, in local control. Just a little bit for our audience to know just what the public in general believes in terms of the support for um, mask mandates. The new Quinnipiac poll today shows that six in 10 Floridians support requiring masks in schools. 61 percent the recent rise in COVID cases was preventable because they're smart and they know it. Um, there's a Democratic poll uh, on Florida from future majority. 51 percent of voters say DeSantis cares more about running for president in 2024 uh, versus 46 percent. He says he cares more about Florida. Um, there's voters differ greatly on freedom versus health. Twenty one percent of Republicans in Florida agree with the statement. My freedom ends only when it is endangering your health. Eighty eight percent of Democrats agree. Fifty six percent of independents agree. Ninety six percent of Florida residents strongly disapprove of DeSantis's job versus ninety three percent of Florida Republicans. The bottom line being um, that Mr. Inahosa, whether it's in Florida or in Texas, these governors are counting on the idea that their voters think that their freedom to be maskless and to make their kids show up maskless matters more than the freedom of other students and teachers to not get COVID. That's what they believe. What would you say back to them? Well, Joy, this is all going to play out real quick because even um, the San Antonio superintendent wanted to have a vaccine in the district and he got sued by the attorney general to stop him. So he had to stop that. There's also a bill that was introduced yesterday to prevent us from having masks. Let's see if it survives this special session. And now I think that even Republican voters in our state are saying, wait a minute, you're playing with fire here. And so I, I think the tide is starting to turn and we'll know in two weeks because that 
that special session will have to adjourn in two weeks and we'll see what happens here if the tide is really turning with our voters on both sides of the aisle. I will note that that special session, we talked about it yesterday, did not include any measures that would protect children in the state of Texas from dying of COVID. COVID was not on the agenda. All that was on the agenda was a lot of Republicans sort of talking point materials, including stopping people of color from voting, because of course. Um, Dr. Rosalind Osgood, thank you very much. Michael Inohosa, thank you both for standing up to your governors and for the children. Up next on The Readout, which members of Congress should be really worried right now after the chairman of the January 6th Select Committee confirmed that he's going after phone, email, and text records of potential insurrection co-conspirators? Hmm. Plus, the U.S. military ramps up evacuations from Afghanistan with the deadline exactly one week away. Are we on track to get everyone out? Plus, the twisted and deadly COVID propaganda machine and how it's causing people to do dangerous things like taking deworming medicine meant for horses. And tonight's absolute worst has flat out declared war on children. And he's already doing a lot of damage. The readout continues after this. Republican lawmakers who may have been involved in the events of January 6th are officially in the crosshairs of the select committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. Political reports that according to Chairman Benny Thompson, the committee will seek electronic communications records related to the attack, including from members of Congress. That means they'll soon be sending letters to telecommunications companies and social media companies requesting they preserve relevant documents. That's likely to come as unwelcome news to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Jim Jordan, both of whom have been notably evasive about their phone calls with Trump on the day of the Capitol siege for some reason. For Jim Jordan, those calls were apparently so sensitive that he waited more than six months to even acknowledge they took place at all, finally giving this rather mealy-mouthed admission in July. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked? Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back and I mean, I don't I don't I don't, I don't know uh, that when when those conversations happen. Uh, OK, by him, you mean you mean president him? OK, let me think. Did I speak to the president. He was the president, right? OK, him. Other Republicans might also have reason to fear having their phone records scrutinized, like Congressman Paul, Go- Bo- Paul Gosar, Mo Brooks and Andy Biggs, who helped plan the Stop the Steal rally that preceded the attack according to one of the organizers. In fact, Mo Brooks later said he was prepared in advance for the violence of that day, admitting that he wore body armor during his speech at the Ellipse prior to the siege for some reason. Joining me now, Congressman Pete Aguilar of California, a member of the Select Committee investigating January 6th. I think it comes as a relief, I think, to a lot of people who watch this show and this network um, who've been following the coverage on various programs Because there always has been this sense that there were members of Congress who all but bragged that they were on the side of the insurrectionists. So is it your understanding that these requests to preserve records are happening because there is some sense that, in fact, members of Congress were involved in some way in planning what happened? 
Well, I'll let Chairman Thompson speak for the select committee and uh, any letters, if there are letters that are going out, I will let uh, he and the, and the press operation for the select committee um, uh, handle that. But what I will say is our mandate is very clear. We want to get to the truth of what happened on January 6th. That means the planning and operation. Uh, that means things that led up to January 6th, as well as the response on January 6th, including the rally that you mentioned. So we're going to continue to do our work. Uh, we have a work plan that we're following, uh, and we're going to be guided by the basic principle uh, that we need to follow uh, every fact uh, and unravel every piece of information we can to seek to get to the truth. Well, let me come at this another way, because we know that people uh, like Jim Jordan spoke to the president that day. We know that the House Minority Leader spoke to the president that day. He's talked about it in interviews. This is publicly in for uh, public information. We know that people like Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs and Mo Brooks, Ali Alexander, who we still don't know where he is, said they helped him organize the quote, stop the steel rally. So we th these are facts that are known. So I guess my question would be, since there's public information that these people had some association with what happened, is it the general belief of those of you who are charged to investigate this that, in fact, all you need to do is find the proof of it, that, in fact, there were members of Congress? I think that's what the American people want to know. In your view, were any members of Congress conspiring with the people who attacked our Capitol? Over 500 individuals have been charged so far by the Department of Justice. We're going to continue to do everything we can to find out who was responsible uh, for this, whether there was coordination, uh, and to chase every lead that we possibly can. We know that the Department of Justice has a role to play, um, and we have a role to play. And so we want to make sure we analyze and review everything that happens that day, and clearly communication with the president uh, is, is uh, a portion of that. And so we want to make sure uh, that we talk about the response that day, whether it was the National Guard responding, uh, whether there was any intentional delay, all of those things we have seen press reports on. But we are going to be guided by the truth and make sure uh, that we can speak with the information um, uh, and to ensure that we follow the truth and get to the facts. Should the uh, people who are paying attention to this expect at some point those who are in possession of Donald Trump's phone records and social media records should also uh, are also going to be asked to preserve their records? Donald Trump. I, I think I think Representative Liz Cheney uh, said it well in our open hearing when she when she said that uh, we should account for uh, the president. Uh, uh, every minute of that day. Mm -hmm. And so that includes uh, communication, that includes uh, what he was watching uh, on television. All of those facts uh, should be uh, out in the public at some point. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to continue to do everything we can uh, to shine a light on what happened uh, that day, the response, the preparation, who funded it, um, and all the events uh, that led up to the planning, uh, which is exactly uh, what you what you talked about mm -hmm. um, on January 6th. Uh, let, let's also talk about some of the other things. There have been a lot of conspiracy theories and low-key, not even low-key, attacks on the officer who shot uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was the militarily trained person who went, tried to go through the speaker's lobby door, uh, was shot by an officer. Not only did the Capitol Police clear this officer, um, CNBC reports an internal investigation found no wrongdoing, and actually the actions of the officer in this case potentially saved members 
members and staff from serious injury and possible death. That's something we could all see with our our eyes when we watched uh, what happened. We saw the video of it. Will this committee um, ensure the, that uh, that officer's identity and name are protected and, they, and it doesn't wind up in any reports? Because it does seem that some on the right are trying to get that person um, outed and that would put them in danger. Physical danger. Well, this is someone who, who put their life on the line to protect, uh, to protect me. I was on the House floor uh, that day of uh, being evacuated uh, just about the same time. And so uh, it's, it's unfortunate that people want to play politics uh, with that uh, event, which is incredibly tragic. Uh, and no one should have lost their life. But let's also remember that those officers, uh, you know, just yards away from, from that incident, uh, were trying to protect their own lives uh, from these insurrectionists who were throwing uh, everything that they could get their hands on, uh, beating individuals with flags and anything uh, that, that wasn't bolted down. And so uh, that individual uh, was protecting the Capitol chamber, uh, was protecting members of Congress, uh, and we need to ensure uh, that we protect that individual's safety as a result of their official actions uh, that day. Uh, let me talk, let's talk about what uh, people believe about January 6th. Among Republicans, 82% of Republicans who were polled um, by an NBC poll said that they believe that January 6th is being exaggerated to discredit Trump and his allies. I guess they didn't see any of the video. Maybe it's not showing on Fox or OANN. Um, but yet people who still believe the big lie, as did the people who attacked our Capitol, still pose a national security threat, as we know we've heard from the FBI. NPR has reported that the, the police department, the Metro Police Department, is going to have an increased presence around D.C. Because on September 18th, the people who support the former president uh, are going to hold something called a Justice for January 6th rally. Um, Matt, former Matt Trump, Trump campaign official Matt Brainard is spearheading the protesting, quote, we're going back to the Capitol right where it started and it's going to be huge. What should we expect the security posture to look like in the Capitol? Will the Capitol be safe to be anywhere near, in your view, on September 18th? Well, we're, we'll work with our law enforcement professionals uh, to make sure that the, the Capitol is protected uh, and that business can be uh, conducted uh, if it's a legislative day. I don't believe that that's a day we're scheduled to be in, in legislative session, but we need to ensure uh, the safety and security of the people who work in this building uh, each and every day. And so that will be our focus. And I would say that it's uh, incredibly uh, sad uh, that that individuals uh, on the right uh, don't want to acknowledge um, that this was an assault on our democracy. Uh, and so that becomes the chief joy. That becomes the, the number one priority that we can do it isn't just following the facts and, and uncovering the truth. It's to ensure that this never happens again. This yeah. was a, a violent assault on our democracy. Uh, and the hallmark of our democracy is a peaceful transition of power. And that's exactly what these individuals uh, wanted to prevent. And yeah. so as we see the public charging documents uh, that the Department of Justice has, has put on their websites, you know, we see that. And so we need to make sure uh, that we're doing everything we can to shine a light on it, uh, uh, to make sure that people understand this is how precious democracy is. Uh, and this is how close we came uh, to those individuals uh, trying to uproot it. Right. Yeah. And some of them seem to want to have a second round. Uh, <clears throat> Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time tonight. Thank and you. still ahead. More than 22,000 evacuations in the last 24 hours as the U.S. races to get U.S. citizens and Afghan allies out of Afghanistan ahead of the August 31 deadline, which President Biden now says he will be sticking to no matter what. We'll bring you the latest next. Stay with us.
We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. In addition, I've asked the Pentagon and the State Department for contingency plans to adjust the timetable, should that become necessary. Late this afternoon, President Biden announced he will not be extending the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan beyond the August 31st deadline. That leaves one week to complete the evacuation of U.S. citizens and allies. After a rough start, the U.S. military has ramped up its efforts with about 71,000 people evacuated in the last 10 days. Almost 22,000 were flown out of Afghanistan just yesterday, including more than 4,000 Americans and their family members. It also includes three babies who were delivered aboard those flights. And given that we were told that the target number of people to be evacuated was about 80,000, that sure sounds like they are on target. Joining me now from Kabul is Jane Ferguson, special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. And Jane, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. So let's talk about this. It seemed, the number we were given at the outset, was that there were about 80,000 people that needed to come out. They're, they're, they're on track, it seems, to make it by the one-week deadline. So where is the pressure coming from to keep troops in longer? Is this, is this more, um, I don't know, where, where, where is the pressure coming from to keep troops there beyond August 31st? Well, what we know, Joy, is that there are still Americans in Afghanistan. The, the, the Biden administration haven't said how many are still to come out. Don't forget, they're not necessarily in Kabul. They could be anywhere mm-hmm. across the country. The, the Taliban takeover of the capital was so rapid, very few people predicted it. Uh, but beyond that, you have to remember that a lot of those numbers were put together before the Biden administration announced an unconditional withdrawal from Afghanistan. So if you're looking at you know, the special immigrant visa applicants, so those, those interpreters and their families that worked alongside the U.S. military, there will have been many who either hadn't applied yet or who were stuck in the system and who were not able to get through. It is famously difficult to get a special immigrant visa. It can take years and years and many attempts, actually, of rejections. Um, And so the the numbers that that were initially put forward didn't necessarily reflect the number of people who would wish to to apply for the visas that they that they were in, entitled to and also we've also heard from the president since then that they were expanding eligibility for the refugee program to include people like who had worked with the the, the United States like with USAID or uh, with with the, the US media and so there were more people who were entitled to at least attempt to get to the United States how they were going to do that in what kind of time frame is what has been so chaotic People are now being told they have one week uh, to make it. And if you don't have the visa in your hand, you're very unlikely to get in the gates. But that doesn't mean you're not going to go and try. And that's why we've seen chaotic scenes here. Well, the, is the United States did not do uh, this in, uh, invasion and occupation of Afghanistan alone. This is an entire NATO operation. So it's presumed that it is all on the United States to do all the evacuations. Are any other countries, any of our NATO allies, attempting to also get people out? Or is this an all U.S. military, all by itself operation? The operations here very much so represent the way this war was fought. There are militaries from all over the world here. It's surreal when you're walking out on the street outside the airport here. You've got British soldiers who are heavily involved in in pulling people out of the crowds, in sorting through, in getting them over to the airbase. I've seen Canadian troops 
Polish troops, Italian troops. I mean, you name it. If someone fought in Afghanistan, there is a presence here and they are trying to get people out. It's actually America's allies here. They're the other militaries that have largely been pushing President Biden to try to extend that deadline, to at least extend it a little bit so they can get their people out and their their own nationals as well as their own interpreters and allies on the battlefield. So it's, it's very much so a joint project. But of course, those who are here from allied forces rely on the U.S. military. This would not be possible without the U.S. Air Force and the ability to basically airlift this amount of people. No one else has that kind of capability. So it's ultimately up to the White House to, as to how long everything's, everyone stays here. The other nations will have to leave before the United States because they are so dependent on the U.S. Air Force. Hmm. Uh, Jane Ferguson, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. With me now, Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst. I don't know if you were able to hear what Jane said, because it sounds to me as if the burden sharing isn't exactly equal. Um, there are all of these NATO countries that are essentially saying it's all up to you, uh, the United States. And it sounds to me like the military are doing quite a thorough job. I mean, they've gotten a lot of people out. You wouldn't know it from sometimes listening to the coverage, but they've gotten a lot of people out. What do you make of the fact that this isn't a shared responsibility so much as it's being made only America's responsibility? Well, it's American responsibility because we maintain the air bridge. We maintain the links from Doha, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and we control the airport with our combat controllers. That's the Air Force teams that actually run the airport properly. So we have more lift capacity than just about everyone. When we brought that air bridge to descend down into uh, the Karzai airport, it became our responsibility. And it's better that it's under our control because our NATO allies know how to integrate with us. Charter jets can fly in there. We have aircraft from everywhere in the world flying in there, particularly, you know, from the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. It's not just U.S. forces and NATO forces are evacuating their own citizen. But we maintain the perimeter and we run this entire air bridge. And let me say one other thing here, Joy. This is going to be. If it stays on track and, and ISIS uh, Khorasan could, could screw this up at any minute, one of the, the second largest non-combatant evacuation in American history. This is not Dunkirk. They are not under attack and being surrounded. This is a, a semi-permissive non-combatant evacuation operation. And we are taking out just about anybody who is there who can prove that they are U.S. aligned or U.S. citizens. You know, we have to maintain something. There are 38 million Afghans. We cannot take every yeah. one of them. And there's going to have to be a tiered system to get them out. Let, let me let, let's let's get into this a little bit more, because so you, right, you had Boris Johnson, you know, talking about um, the number one condition uh, we're setting for the G7 is they've got to guarantee um, safe passage for those who want to come out. So, so everyone agrees that people need to come out. There was this great video, this clip of these young girls, these Afghan girls who were on um, like a computer, a tech team. Right. And they were all they were sort of all together and they all got on a plane. They all got to Qatar. They all got out. It was actually really heartwarming to see them go. It seems that the Taliban are belatedly realizing that their fourth century politics may not work for their future as a country because they're now saying, whoa, hold on a second. The United States, they don't want you. They don't want us encouraging their doctors and lawyers and their engineers and those who are educated that we need them. They, they put out this is their Taliban spokesperson saying this country needs our doctors, engineers and those who are educated. We need those talents. Really? Because some of them are women. So I'm wondering what kind of leverage 
there might be available to NATO countries, to the United States after the 31st. The World Bank still has to deal with the Taliban and whatever government is there financially. Their money is not necessarily uh, available to them right now. They're still wanting to talk because they don't want to have a complete brain drain of that country. So in your view, is the 31st the end of any conversation that international forces could have with the Taliban to make sure that they that people who want out can leave? Well, certainly is not going to be a, a cutoff date where everything just ends. You know, the Taliban put that hardline position up because that's how you negotiate over there. And uh, by sending our CIA director, who is, I understand, 30 years a diplomat, uh, was the right person to go there. Uh, so by bringing the Taliban to the table, letting them know that there are alternatives that, you know, and there's leverage that we have an enormous quantity of money yeah. that actually belongs to the government of Afghanistan, whoever that is. Right. So, uh, you know, they have to decide one of two things very quickly. And I think it's already forming up because the, the leadership of the Taliban are my age, right? They are nearing late 50s, early 60 years old and have been fighting since they were children. Are they going to lead a nation state or just a guerrilla base camp? And I think that the last time when when we had this, uh, when, you know, when the warlords took over in the 1980s and they fought them and beat them, they just became a guerrilla base camp that was had the, you know, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan flag. And that was about it. They had no recognition from anyone other than a couple of Gulf states. This time they have to run a nation state and they want to be players in that region. And they're going to have to make those concessions. If they think that they're just going to cut us off on the 31st and we're going to happily fly out and abandon American citizens or even some of those allies, uh, they've got another thing coming to them. We have the capacity to uh, to, to get everyone that out that we want. I think we will. I think we'll beat 100,000 by the end of next week. And I, I look forward to hearing those naysayers tell us that this was the worst military disaster in history. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the narrative will be, well, you only got 100,000 out. That's a failure. I mean, I, I don't know that there's anything that uh, that Biden could do other than promise to leave troops in there for another 20 years in order to satisfy some folks. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, Malcolm Nance, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Still ahead. When the FDA has to remind Americans that they're not livestock and should not be ingesting medicines designed for livestock, it's not hard to understand how frustrations with the unvaccinated are peaking right now. Why it's so hard to overcome the misinformation that causes this kind of dangerous behavior. That is next. More than a year since a man not qualified to be a doctor or a president began boosting an anti-malaria drug as a supposed COVID cure, a new quack remedy has emerged to take its place. It's called ivermectin, an anti-parasitic treatment for humans that also has a version used to treat livestock and horses. Okay, most of us can agree that we're living in a mixed-up, topsy-turvy pandemic right now. We're in the upside down. But this, this is pretty out there. People are now taking a drug formulated not to treat COVID, but rather head lice and parasites. And remember I said it comes in human and livestock versions? Unable to obtain their obsession from, say, a pharmacy, since doctors are not goofy enough to prescribe it to them, true believers are scoring the drug from places like the local feed store. And they're ingesting it in doses formulated for animals that outweigh humans by a ton, literally a ton. 
and winding up in the hospital to compete for treatment with COVID patients. You really can't make it up. The FDA issued some real talk, tweeting, you are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. They had to tell people that they're not horses. Mississippi health officials are now saying the same after receiving a number of calls to poison control by residents ingesting the horse dewormer. This is a state, mind you, with the second lowest vaccination rate in the country. And where 13-year-old Michaela Robinson became the second Mississippi school kid to die of COVID when she passed last week, causing her school to shut down, but not moving her governor, Tate Reeves, to change his mind at all about opposing mask mandates. Joining me now is NBC News senior reporter Ben Collins. Ben, I am so excited to talk to you today because I have heard and have argued with enough anti-vaxxers at this point to, number one, have my frustration level be on like 100. And number two, to have noticed that they all say the same things. They all use the same talking points as if they're all getting it from the same source. Do you have any idea, as our guy on the, uh, in the world that sort of understands the Facebook universe, is there like a single source for all of this, these these conspiracy theories about the vaccine? Well, they're all in these smaller communities, uh, and some of them are on Facebook. Now, ivermectin is not a banned thing on Facebook, in part because, uh, you know, it's part of a drug cocktail that people with COVID do get in other parts of the country, especially part, other parts of the world, sorry, especially parts of the world that do not have access to the vaccine. They would love access to the vaccine, but they have to, you know, treat it with therapeutics that are still kind of experimental, right? So they're not banning ivermectin, but in these Facebook pages, like the biggest ivermectin Facebook page is called uh, Ivermectin MD Team, which features <laughs> largely pretty much zero doctors. Um, it's people telling people how to ingest it, how to take it. Like, for example, there's one uh, pe- people keep saying, like, it's like a jelly or something. I don't know how to use this. They're like, oh, just mix it into your guacamole. Wait, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Man. Yeah. People who and you've probably heard people say this too. say, I can't take the vaccine. That's experimental. Yes are going on Facebook and taking something that is in an experimental cocktail in other countries and saying, well, I'm willing to take that. Is it a jelly? That's what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, they try to get the actual like little pill, like an actual drug first. And Mm -hmm. then they realize they're not going to get it. They go to the feed store. They Mm -hmm. get it in the kind that says for sheep or whatever. And uh, they try to find ways to eat it that are uh, a little bit more palatable than uh, just taking it out of the tube. But dude, it's look, it's really grim stuff, but that's where we're at right now. Uh, the, and it's not just regular people. The, the mayor of Lake Ozark, um, the Kansas City Star had this piece out in Missouri. Lake Ozark Mayor Dennis Newberry in a Facebook post, of course, plugged the anti-parasite drug commonly used in animals and other federal health officials warned the drug can be dangerous and hasn't been approved. And he said, help me, please. I need to get my friend that has COVID this ivermectin. And so he's out there literally crowdsourcing how to get it. And, and, and this is where I want you to talk a little bit about, the as you just described, where sort of true things morph into fake things. At one point, the Wall Street Journal had written a whole op-ed saying, why is the FDA attacking a safe, effective drug? Ivermectin is a promising COVID treatment for and prophylaxis, but the agency is denigrating it. A guy named Michael Henderson, David Henderson and Charles Hooper wrote. That's on July 28th. They later had to run a, co- a correction saying this article has been edited to remove a reference to a study of 200 healthcare workers, 200, um, by Ahmed El-Ghazar of Belra University in Egypt. Henderson and others relied on a summary of studies, yada, 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 meaning it was a bad study and they, and they couldn't rely on it. But people are getting little pieces of something that they that's true and mixing it. 
Can Facebook not stop that? I don't know if they, Facebook can stop that. That's a very difficult thing. That study was everywhere until they realized that it had to be retracted. Um, it was the primary thing that these that these people pointed to as uh, the reason to treat people with this instead of the vaccine. Uh, and that's the other thing is th- these spaces should be open. Um, you should have to, you should, there should be a place to talk about the vaccines with people who are worried about taking them. But very frequently, the people who are running these spaces are committed to an ideology that's anti-vax ideology as it is. You know, anti-vaxxers have been, uh, well before COVID, have mastered the idea of getting people nervous about vaccines. And people who are new to the game, you know, we're all new to the game. We're all new to the game of trying to get people to get the vaccine, right? Because because it's safe and effective. But, you know, we don't have that sort of rhetorical tricks that they that they mastered on Facebook and all these social media platforms for the last, you know, five, 10 years. And we also don't have the, the following. Most people don't. Um, Busta Rhymes. Let me just play real quick what he did recently. And then you're gonna have a very quick answer after this. We're out of time. Go ahead. It's called the God-given right of freedom, right? No human being is supposed to tell you you can't even breathe freely. F*** your mask. I'm not saying and this was anti-masks, not anti-vax. But how much are influencers like Busser having? They have more influence than Dr. Fauci at this point, right? Yeah, it, it's a big deal that he's doing this, uh, in, in part because people are desperate for information of any kind. You know, the, the talking point is always go see your doctor, go talk yeah. to your doctor. People don't have doctors. They don't have Fair. primary care physicians. So they go and they, they find the person they trust. Some, for some people, I guess it's Buster Rhymes. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't live in like 2002, but it is, <gasps> I guess that is kind of the case for some people. So that's the worry. They don't have doctors. They go find somebody on the internet. Uh, I'll just say I'm an OG hip hop fan. I'm old enough to have been a fan of Buster Rhymes and trust and believe he will not be giving me medical advice. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you, Ben Collins. Thank you. It's a wild world out there. Woo. Okay, don't go anywhere. Believe it or not, it can get worse. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead as a Republican governor strips assistance, get this, away from those who need it most in the middle of a pandemic. He is helping to prolong. That's next. Governor Ron DeSantis has been appallingly derelict in doing anything to fight the pandemic, from prioritizing Regeneron pop-up clinics over vaccinations to declaring open war on educators looking to protect the state's school children. But he's also made it harder for some Floridians to survive financially, rejecting federal economic aid left and right. As COVID has raged across the Sunshine State this summer, DeSantis touted a return to business as usual. He joined the cavalcade of Republican governors, prematurely cutting off federal enhanced unemployment assistance, claiming it was deterring people from getting back to work in a pandemic that has savaged Florida's service and tourism industry. So to what jobs, Governor? He didn't say. The Washington Post notes that the cruel blocking of jobless aid to struggling Floridians came just as the Delta variant began pummeling the state. But it would seem the cruelty is the point. After all, your health is secondary to the economy. Am I right? It doesn't stop there. DeSantis also refused to reinstate a moratorium on evictions as the federal ban was set to end at the end of July. Perhaps he doesn't understand that homelessness makes pandemics worse. Or maybe he does and he just doesn't care. The Tampa Bay Times found that at that point, the state had only distributed 2% of federal rent assistance with hundreds of millions still on the table. 
Now, as Governor DeSantis, as he's known by his critics, continues to push to infect the Sunshine State's children with his dangerous and stupefying mask mandate ban, he's also allowing children in need to go hungry. The DeSantis administration has yet to apply for up to $820 million in federal food assistance dollars for more than 2 million Florida kids. That's on top of the $280 million a month lost for federal SNAP benefits recipients after he allowed the state's pandemic state of emergency fund to expire in June. Apparently, DeSantis has been just too busy declaring war on school districts over masks to find the time to ask for hundreds of millions of federal dollars for kids who missed meals because they weren't going to school. Even after the Agricultural Department extended the program through the summer. So for for continuing to put Florida's kids in outright peril and just being one mean, cruel, COVID-boosting SOB, Ron DeSantis is once again tonight's absolute worst. And that's the show.